The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. I'll give you some time to turn there. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his work, oh, sorry, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together, by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. 
And God bless the reading of his word. Man, you guys may be seated. Thank you, Tanner. Um, when Tanner agreed to read tonight, I don't think he realized that I was giving him the longest passage of the week so far. But uh, very thankful. I really appreciate that. Um, uh, let me just start with just a summation of Ephesians 4 from a, um, a, a point that hit me earlier today. At Christmas time, um, my family usually takes uh, time after we set up the Christmas tree and then all throughout the Christmas season, pulling out just really old Christmas movies. And one of our favorite Christmas movie lines is just the whole Santa Claus line. We're not like big on Santa Claus, but we just think those movies are funny with Tim Allen. Well, in the second Santa Claus movie, Tim Allen actually gets a plastic duplicate made of himself and he's kind of running Christmas land while he's back trying to find a wife, uh, a Mrs. Claus, so to speak. And so, um, but there's a moment where this sweet little elf comes up to him with her hot chocolate mix that she's perfected over her life of a thousand years. Um, and he drinks it and he's like guzzling it. And then he looks at her like, wow, I love hot chocolate. Right. Um, that's what I felt like when I read Ephesians four. Um, I mean, this passage is rich and good and hot and like, whoa. I mean, so if you read it in the power of God's spirit, you're just like, oh, my goodness, this is really something incredibly special. And so I have condensed my notes as far as I can to get through the whole chapter tonight. But I will tell you guys this, that if you feel like you need to leave before I get finished, I won't be offended. Um, I might want to leave before I get finished. Um, but um, let me just start with a quick review. I know a couple of you guys are, are your first time is tonight and some of you have missed a few weeks. I mean, it's hard to make seven straight nights in a row. Um, and so hopefully you've been able to listen online or follow on Facebook Live. Um, but in Acts 19, well, let me just come back. Let me take a, the most important thing. Um, even if tonight is your first night, um, you have to take the discipline the next couple of days and just read Ephesians in one sitting. Um, and then once you finish that, just sit back, take a deep breath, um, and then maybe go through it again. Um, but I would love for us as a church family to read this letter in its entirety at least a couple more times before the week is over. Um, there is so much in here that really we can teach and we can talk about, but we really have to let the Holy Spirit mix into that. Because if we don't, I don't think we'll ever experience the full power of it. Um, that's why I use the hot chocolate analogy, because that's kind of what I feel like this week. I just really feel like the Holy Spirit has been with us in a special way. And the words are coming off the pages much more differently than they, they normally do. Um, and uh, just really excited about that. So we chose the letter of Ephesians for this. Or let me just take the we out of this. I heard the Lord really tell me you need to go through the book of Ephesians. Um, because I feel like the bottom line is, is that it tells us what the church is supposed to do. And so if we can read this and really figure out what Paul is telling this early church in Ephesus, we're going to figure out what the church is supposed to do. And so then if as a as a residual effect of that, if we find out what the church is supposed to do, it's very likely that we're going to find out what we're supposed to do. Um, because each of us is an intricate part of the body that's called the church, which is really the bride of Christ. And so when we looked at the book of Acts, we found out that all through the when we looked at Acts 19, which is 
probably 20 years earlier than the letter that we're reading, maybe 30 years earlier. It's the story of when Paul actually went into Ephesus and planted the church. And so if you haven't read that, I would encourage you. Let me highlight it very quickly. Paul shows up. Paul finds people willing to be discipled. There are actually 12 of them. He pours his life into them for three years. And without, and, 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 and not just pouring his life in and he's teaching them theology good theology and then not only is he teaching them good things about christ the holy spirit has now gotten involved and now signs and wonders that are reaffirming that everything paul is telling them is true and so it starts out with 12 jewish men but then it spreads to multiple gentiles now meeting with jewish people and paul's teaching them how they are now a part of one family and then it's all mixed in with paul's handkerchiefs and aprons being anointed and people are being healed and and before long it says that everybody in the region not just the city of ephesus but everybody in the region had heard paul's message at least through paul or through the people of paul about this powerful work of Jesus Christ. And the city of Ephesus was a powerful city. It was a power of religion, a power of politics, a power of world trade. It had everything going. It was like a New York City, London, Paris, whatever it was of our day, where it's like, okay, everybody's like, wow, this is the city that's driving the world today. And this is what was going on. And Paul and these people through this discipleship, intense discipleship, Paul wasn't spending his time talking to antagonists. He was spending his time talking to those that were willing to listen. I think it's really important. He wasn't going out and trying to be um, like, oh, I just got to have this person that is just antagonizing to me. I got to I got to just go win them to Christ. He spent time discipling those. And he continued to proclaim truth about Christ. But when the riot broke out, because all of the economy had changed, like within three years, all of the people that were now following after Paul, they changed the, the cultural climate of an entire city. So much so that the main business people, one guy in particular named Demetrius, gets all fired up, causes a riot because they're losing money. They've been losing money for three consecutive years. Because people aren't paying the money to go into the temples for all the sexual favors and all of the little idols that they were taking back. Less and less people were interested in that stuff because they had found the one true God. They weren't interested in the empty temples. And so Demetrius causes a riot. But in the midst of that, the city mayor stands up. It's called the city clerk. And he basically quiets them down by saying, look, these people have done nothing wrong. They're people of good character. They haven't stolen from us. They haven't defamed our gods. They haven't. They just they've just been living amongst us and we're in danger of Rome taking away our freedom if we keep this riot going on. And so here, Paul, through discipleship, changed an entire city. But yet the reputation of the church was there without blame. They were faultless. They they had no accusations that would stick. And then now, 20 some, maybe 30 some years later, we Paul is writing this most likely now in Acts 28 and he's in prison, probably much older waiting his death in Rome, and he's now writing a church that has 20 years of history, maybe 30 years of history, and he's saying to them, I know that you're going to be bumping up all kinds of confusion and chaos and tensions and trying to be one in Christ together, so I'm going to write you a letter that is going to help you outline your theology and help you outline how you actually play it out. So the first half of the book, which is what we finished last night. Well, I'm going to finish in just a minute when I say a prayer for you um, that Paul prayed. Um, it's, it's the end of the theology. Now we're all going to get into the practical. And I must tell you guys, um, 
if there's a night that is going to be the most challenging, tomorrow night I think is going to be. Um, um, and so you can be praying for me as I figure out the best way to speak that type of truth and to emphasize it for us. But tonight is going to be difficult enough, so let me just jump into it. Um, but as I said, we didn't read these verses. I'm going to read them to you as a prayer over you. This is how Ephesians 3 ends. Ephesians 3 ends with Paul basically saying a special prayer for them. But I also want to remind you of what has happened up to this point. He's reminded them of the grace of God that is unmerited. You know, we have done nothing to earn it, that he actually is a recipient of grace. He went from a murderer to an apostle in the church. He went from being one that killed their family to now building multiple churches for the sakes of their family. And so he's saying grace. Who could have done that? Only God could have done that. And then he goes, peace, because once we experience the grace of God, there's just the peace. No matter what our circumstances like, there's peace. And then he goes on to explain the three characters of the Trinity and how they play out in salvation. The object is the Father. The preposition is that we're in Christ. And then the Holy Spirit just does all this powerful work of revelation of, of wisdom and power. And then he starts talking through all these other ways that they're to grow and that it's now Gentile inclusion time. That it's not just a Jewish faith anymore. Even though the stream started in the nation of Israel, all these other streams are now flowing into it. And now we are we are taking on all of the promises of the nation of Israel. And we are now adopted into that promise. And, and now we are now flowing in a totally different name uh, following after Jesus Christ. But all of it was the origin of the river was the nation of Israel. And he's saying, look, now with all these different streams coming together, you guys got to know how to interact with one another. Because it's difficult when, when different cultures bring different practices and different preferences. And if we're not careful, and we're not fixed on Jesus, and we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, we're going to have all kinds of divisions amongst us. And we've got to be really careful of that. So in light of all of that, in light of understanding the grace of God, the work of God, the person and the power of being in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, and that everybody is supposed to be a part of the same family, now is this prayer. I want you guys to hear it. Because a lot of times we'll come to this prayer and you're going to hear some words out of this prayer in just a minute. You're going to be like, yes, I've heard this before. And yes, I want that to be true. But I want you to understand this is true in the context of everything we've been taught the last six nights. This isn't a standalone prayer that has nothing to do with the past teachings. This has everything to do with our awareness of how much God has lavished his love on us and how much we should be lavishing our love on one another despite race, color, economics, or whatever. So listen to this, starting in verse 14 of chapter 3. For this reason I kneel before the Father, for whom every family in heaven on, and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he might strengthen you with the power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now listen to this. This is true in light of everything we've been taught. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more 
than we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This immeasurably more part. God can do immeasurably more than we in this room can collectively think of to do good. But the problem is, is that a lot of times we're not one. We're not in Christ together. There's too much division and, and uh, I, I feel superior to other people. And that's not the humility of Christ. And so I, my desire is, is that this prayer becomes true, that God does immeasurably more than we ever ask. Let me just tell you, I already feel like God's doing that. So I'm not speaking to a church that doesn't do this. But I just want you to know when you're talking to your friends as a form of discipleship and evangelism, when you get to this prayer, we have to bring the multi-ethnic, multi-economic church to the conversation. It can't just be about people that like each other or that look like each other. Or that act like each other. Even multi-generational would be something that I think would be really important. All right, so Ephesians 4. The best way for me to enter into this, because he is now transitioning from theology to practice, the fundamentals instructions. You can call this chapter the 101 fundamental instructions for being a Christian or living a Christian life. Um, I don't know if any of you have in the last 10 years bought a car, whether new or used. But generally, when you go to the dealership or you go on Craigslist or whatever it is that you buy your car and you show up at the car, I don't know of any of us in here that immediately go to the owner's manual and read it. You generally walk around the car. You ask, can I sit in it? And you get behind the wheels and you touch it, especially if it's the first time you've ever bought a new car. You just smell new car smell. New car smell has become a smell that you buy at the auto store now, right? And so you grab the steering wheel. You feel the freshness of the steering wheel that's very, that hasn't been touched by many hands. And you look at all the adjustments and the buttons and the colors. And you're just sitting in the seat and you're just overwhelmed by your first experience with the car. And even before you buy it, you don't read the manual. Um, you'll generally only go to the manual sometime after you started to drive it to begin to think, well, how do I maintain and care for it? And some of you are like, the car comes with a manual. <laughs> um, uh, generally in the glove box, just a big book at the bottom of your glove box. Um, but there are things that you and I need to read that are more than just experiences with God. So that we maintain efficiency in our faith family. So we can have a worship experience and be like, wow, it's so good to be in the family of God. We can touch it. We can feel it. We can embrace it by hugging one another. We can share meals. But there's something about us taking a chapter like Ephesians 4 and reading it and being like, okay, this is the owner's manual for my Christian faith. So there's three things um, that I think emerge here at the beginning of this. Um, number one, he's talking to them about the meaning of their calling to follow the king. 
He's going to talk about the grace which has equipped each of them to play their part in the service of him. And then he's also going to talk about the unity they already have, but which they must make every effort to guard. So let me say that again. He's going to talk about the meaning of their calling following King Jesus. He's going to talk about the grace which has equipped them to play their part in serving him. And then he's going to talk to them about the unity they already have. But now he's going to switch the emphasis to you've got to fight for it. You've got to guard it. You can't just assume it's always going to be there. People have to watch over the unity. If not, this unity will start to happen. So I believe that part of the reason why Paul is stressing this, especially the first one, the meaning of our calling to follow Jesus. If I was to ask all of us in the room, what do you think God's call is on your life? I think we would get a myriad of answers. I think a lot of us would say, well, like me, I'm, I, I feel called to be a pastor. Others are like, I feel called, like God wants me to go into nursing or I'm in the science or I'm, I'm in the law or whatever it is that God, you think is your calling. I just want to tell you guys this. There's a calling before that calling that comes with our belief in Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4 is that our calling is to testify about Christ. That's our number one calling. And we many times will go into a vocation saying God wants me to be a nurse, but we'll go years and years and years and years into our practice and we'll never talk to anybody about Jesus. So we've jumped the first calling to go into a practice that yet we feel like God wants us to be that. But our first calling, like 101 basic Christianity is you and I telling people the story of Christ in us and talking about the fact that the Father lavished His love on us and through grace in Him we can enter into Christ and we get all the promises and then we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, first 12, 13 verses is, is 101 Christianity. And at some point you and I have to say, I want to be excellent in my calling. And that calling is that we need to talk about Jesus Christ. But it's also the most likely forgotten one, right? If we were honest tonight, I don't know how many of us were thinking that answer. But the majority of us in this room tonight are Christians. And we've been a part of churches for probably 10 or more years. And, and in process of all that, how much have we really talked about the, the foundational calling in our life is to talk to others about him? One of the things I think that he's... Um, doing here is a key part of this calling in the Christian hope, um, which I think works a lot like this. Because King Jesus has conquered death, all who give them their faithful allegiance are assured of that same victory as well. And so when we're talking to people, we're talking to people about the fact that there is victory, there's life, there's a resurrection that's in store for them. And none of the things that have ever troubled anybody is ever going to win over them. Part of that calling when we talk about God, when we're living up to it, is that we're ready to do that calling at every moment of our life. Not just on planned evangelistic mission trips or when we have a set aside church serving project. I think this calling is when we're ready for every moment. It impacts every decision that we make during the day. It impacts every word or action. It impacts the way that we're aware of how Jesus is interacting with us in the circumstances that we're choosing to engage in. It's keeping our eyes completely loyal to him and taking precedence over everything else. I think Paul then begins to talk more and more in this passage in particular 
um, that this must lead them back again and again to celebrate their unity and maintain and guard it. Because they're constantly adding new people. Because their calling is to talk about Jesus, people are responding to it. So the church is constantly adding new people. But the thing is, is that when new people come, they don't know what they don't know. They've only been introduced to what you've told them. And so they walk into a setting like Sunday. Um, There was a young lady that was sitting off to this side of the room whose first time in church was Sunday. Bless her heart. (laughs) Um, Experienced powerful worship, but then heard a sermon on tithing and giving. Right. What a nightmare for a first time attender. Right. Um, it was, it was, it was, it was overwhelming for her from her background. And, um, and so in a setting like this, we have people coming in all the time. And one of the problems with me as a communicator is, is you have different people have different levels of awareness. Sometimes you're boring some because, oh, they already heard this. They know this. Tell me something new. Right. And then there's other people over there like, wow, this is too much. And so Paul is writing this letter to them because he wants them to constantly be aware that that there are new people coming. But the one thing that is above all clear here is that he's saying that everybody, whether new or old to the church, shares the same spirit. That they possess the same hope. And then he goes on to say they also have the same Lord. They have the same faith. They have the same baptism. They have the same God. And matter of fact, it's the true God, the sovereign one who stands over and against all other God and goddesses as the rising sun does to the man-made candles and torches. This list of things all Christians have in common looks as though it was a list that I think they memorized. When I look at the book of Ephesians, I think there's certain sections of this that people actually took and memorized it so that they could constantly be aware of it and so if there's a book of the bible that really would be good for us to memorize from the first verse to the last verse it might actually be the book of ephesians what kind of challenge would that be for us to see if we as a church could learn and study these verses together that way the next time we go through it you know somebody can come up to the microphone and be like all right guys we're starting at ephesians one and then you know that would be so great wouldn't it it would be outstanding Especially if they said the did it part. <laughs> Unity, of course, um, is what he stressed in chapter two. Um, but I think the astonishing coming together of the Jews and Gentiles here was continuing to become something that they needed coaching through and help through. Because Paul here is talking to them um, about guarding and mounting guard over that unity as one that would set troops at the doors or that would sit troops against the treasury so that they could keep and protect something that's very precious to them. There are all sorts of types of attacks that want to spoil that unity and, and that they must be resisted. And if any chance we must fight so they never occur. And so here's one of the things that I fear. And then I was reading through this, that actually a fear came over me as a pastor that we've grown accustomed to too many divisions within the worldwide church. I just want to let that rest for a moment. I think we've been, become comfortable with the fact that there's divisions. And let me just give you some examples. Before the 1600s, it was Catholic-Protestant division. After the Reformation, there's been so many other denominations that have been started that the, the Christian church isn't unified. 
there's, there's way too many. If some of you have been to our essentials class, my joke that I say in that essential class is how many Baptist denominations are there in the United States of America? Right now, there's over 130. I mean, like, how, how, how many ways can you divide a Baptist before you're not a Baptist anymore? Right? We have a serious unity issue. And it may be possible for a church to just wander away from Jesus. It's so easy for a church to want to be unique and to be, um, uh, I don't know, exciting and hip and cool or whatever it could be. But yet there are a lot of churches nowadays that you walk into and you can walk into the service and out of the service. and You never hear the name of Jesus. This passage, I think he's emphasizing here the way in which the risen and ascended Lord Jesus gives a variety of gifts to different members of his body. And I think this is important because it really does help us not compete with one another, that we end up treasuring one another and we fight against competition when we realize that God has done something very special. There are other passages in Paul's letters where Paul gives a list of various gifts that are also not included here. So this isn't a complete list. This is a list that includes what I feel like he was saying to them or like foundational. But there are other ways that he talked to people. Before, but before he gets into this whole idea of gifts, he kind of gets semi-poetic because he starts quoting Psalm 68:18. But he begins to explain it to create a biblical setting for what is to come. The gift that Jesus gives are part of the great story of what he's already achieved. The problem is, is that the psalm in question, which talks about the going up and so on, it seems difficult to understand. So what does it mean of him going up and then coming back down? Now, I think that a lot of the Jewish people in the city of Ephesus would have understood this, but a lot of the Gentiles would have found it difficult because who was one of the major players in the, in the faith of Israel that went up and came down quite often? Moses. He would go up the mountain and be with God. He would come back down the mountain and it was obvious he'd been with God. He would go up the mountain, come back down with law, right? He would go up the mountain, spend time. People would be like, where is he? Is he dead? He's been gone too long. He'd come back down. And so Jewish people in their teaching and training had a huge concept of the going ups and the coming downs of spiritual movements in their, in their family. And so a lot of Gentiles didn't understand that. They didn't grasp this. So a first century, first century Jew would have probably immediately thought of this. But after the Exodus story, when the Egyptians were defeated and the Israelites rescued from slavery, again, so much of Paul's language in Ephesus is about being freed from sin, which the Old Testament language for that in many ways is slavery. Um, and now this idea of Moses going up and down Mount Sinai. Paul seems to see the ascension of Jesus as being a sense like Moses. But yet, like the new Exodus, it wasn't that Jesus came back down. His spirit came. So it's the same God, but different. And it's the best for us right now. And so the psalm is really hinting at the fact that what, come, what, what went up is actually sending back something better. For the Jews, it was they got the law. They found out what God wanted from them and they could read it and then obey it. But yet, obviously, many times didn't do that. But for us, we get the spirit. This is really complicated to explain. So I'm just going to read a quote to you from N.T. Wright on verse 9 that I hope will help. It is one of the most puzzling things in the whole letter, but is probably meant simply to stress that 
In the gift of the Spirit, it is Christ himself who is received. This is how King Jesus makes the church into his own fullness, giving his own presence by the Spirit. Now, let me go back to Ephesians chapter 1. The Holy Spirit is what reveals things to us, gives us wisdom, and gives us power. So tonight, if some of these concepts are really not making sense to you, I want you to read these verses and marinate on them and ask the Spirit to help you make sense of it. Because some of us have access to the power of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that powerful telescope that illuminates things in a great distance. We're like, wow, I can see more clearly. And you turn to your friend, like, don't you see that? And they're like, no. And they're like, they don't have the telescope. And so tonight I hope that you will, that this, that the spirit will get involved, but this is in no doubt a deep mystery. And there are a lot of deep mysteries. We're getting ready to start a series on Sunday about the deep mysteries of Christ and why he had to die. So just know that it's going to be like a really, um, mature version of Scooby-Doo for the next nine weeks, right? Because we're going to be looking at all kinds of deep mysteries and trying to figure them out. So I just want to make sure you were listening. Um, the mystery machine, sorry. Um, this is one of the things um, that I really feel like the, the Lord is going to help us to grasp and understand is this powerful truth that Jesus went up so the Holy Spirit could come down. But it's by the Spirit in each of us that we can become one with different gifts lavished in the church through Christ, the same Lord, the same baptism, the same one that is bringing us hope. This is how we maintain unity when we begin to understand how the Holy Spirit does this. There's several transitions in here. And let me start this next series in Ephesians with a little bit of, um, I don't know if any of you have ever had that somebody say to you, don't be a baby. Have any of you had somebody say that to you in the last year? (laughs) Um, I hope not. Oh, maybe. (laughs) All right. Sorry. Well, uh, at least one. Um, But... um, as an adult, that's very offensive, right? Even as a teenager, that's very offensive. Even as a middle school student, you know, upper elementary. But could you imagine saying, don't be a baby to a baby? Even just imagine that they could understand the English language and they understand what you're saying to them. They're laying there looking at you like, but I am a baby. So why are you telling me not to be a baby? And I think there's a little bit of a tone of this in Ephesians 4, because Paul is actually saying to many of them in the church, don't be a baby anymore. Mature. That can be harsh. You need to mature. Now, there are parts of our Christian faith that take time to mature. But that is not an excuse for the fact that there are certain parts of our faith that can come quickly, swiftly. Almost in an instant, maybe overnight through a week or two, just reading some scriptures and you start out as a baby. But really, you're just like, wow, I just look how much I grew. It's like we draw the pencil line on the wall where we're where our height is. And then the next Sunday, we're like, wow. And then and we're like, we like we've grown 18 inches in the last three Sundays because of why? Because of our effort? Absolutely not. But the revelation of the Holy Spirit, because in Christ, we now have access to the spirit who's an excellent teacher that brings revelation, brings wisdom, brings power, and, and we start to mature. And so, so Paul, walking into that, having experienced thousands of people maturing, and then walking into a church and seeing people that were immature, he's going to say, don't be a baby. Let the Spirit mature you. 
What are you not doing? Are you denying the meat? Are you denying your vegetables? You know, are you just stuck on the bottle? Like, let's take the bottle away. Well, I want my bottle. Well, grow up. So there's a little bit of that in this particular passage. And one of the ways he begins to emphasize this is that he talks about three little scenarios. He talks about babies. He talks about a boat being tossed around in a stormy sea. And he talks about cunning tricksters gambling with loaded dice, so to speak. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where somebody has a dice game and then you try to figure out, you know, how their dice gives tricks. I have an uncle that actually goes to the stores and spends his money on trick things. And I went to see him a few Sundays ago because my son was given tickets to a Pittsburgh Penguins game in Pittsburgh. And my uncle lives near Pittsburgh. And so he had this incredible experience of meeting my uncle. (laughs) We weren't in the house five minutes sitting down at the table. My uncle disappears. And he comes back with things that I saw 30 years ago. (laughs) And they were torn and broken and they weren't working right. And he'd be like, hold on, let me try that again. You know, it was hilarious just watching him try to trick my son. Kayla was a trooper. But there were a couple of tricks that we were like, wow, that's pretty awesome. Right. And then we figured him out. And he's like, oh, you're not supposed to figure him out. And I'm like, well, that's curiosity. But um, you're also older and slower. Um, But it was... uh, it was just a lot of fun, but let's just say, let's just be honest. Um, if it's not people, there's principalities and their sole desire right now is to trick you. Their sole desire is to deceive you. Their sole desire is to take advantage of you. There's people that want to make money off of you. There's people that want to take advantage of you emotionally, spiritually, physically. And so let me ask you this. Why aren't we maturing? So that we can fight against it. That's what Paul's saying. He's like, do you not realize that you need to mature so that when a trickster shows up, you can discern their trick and not be taken captive by it? Do you not want to mature because there's spiritual forces that are telling you lies and you're like, wait a minute, I need to guard my heart. I need to guard my mind. That's not true. And maturity is what gives you the ability to be able to do that so that you and I can fulfill our purpose in the body and mature. Because if one of us is starting to immature or is still immature or we haven't matured, but the rest of the body is maturing, the whole body is going to feel it. And I don't think that we really truly appreciate what that means to a church family. I mean, if I was to physically grow up, but my kidneys still stayed baby size, I would be in serious trouble as an adult. And so much about what's going on is about us realizing that we need to mature so that we can discern everything that's happening or else we're going to be like a boat with no paddles and no rudder in the middle of the ocean. Is what Paul is saying. You're going to be tossed around by everything. And the next chapter is when he starts listing off some of the everythings. And so you can read ahead, but don't do that right now. Verse 15, actually, he points to one of the results that we will learn to speak truth, not just about anything and everything, but about the matters of Christian teaching and doctrine. He does. God doesn't want us to go out and just necessarily get a master's or a Ph.D. so we can be smart in everything. He wants us to excel in talking about Jesus. And you don't have to go through 12 years of school to excel in talking about Jesus. I'm a prime example of that. I don't think I excel in talking about Jesus, 
But a lot of people in the church may or may not realize, but my biblical studies um, stopped at the university level. I, I don't, haven't completed my master's. I don't have a doctorate degree. Um, but yet I have been a diligent steward of studying and reading and sitting with the Holy Spirit and saying, teach me. And I guarantee you that the majority of people that come to church on Sundays think that I have a degree past the university level. And there will be people that will now leave the church and that are now closing Facebook because I just confess that publicly. But I don't hide it. I even tell people in our essentials class where my education stops. But yet, why is that important when there's a testimony of the power of the Holy Spirit in and amongst us and the things that are coming out of my mouth are pleasing and honoring to Christ that are reverent to the Father in heaven and that have power attached to them? Thank you. Faced... The main result, though, from this whole thing Paul's on in verses 15 and 16, is that the process by this, that, that, that by this process of maturity, we should become truly what we were really principled to be, members of the body of Christ. That's why we got the calling in the first place, was to be a part of that There's this difficult part of this that those says, like, we're growing into the head. Um, I'm like, Paul, could you have said that differently? That would make it a lot more helpful. Because most of you in this room are medical or scientific, and you know that you don't grow into your head unless you're a baby with a large head, right? And then we joke about that. Well, hopefully that baby grows into that head, right? Um, But that's not, I don't think, what Paul is actually saying here. I think what Paul is actually getting to here is that that every Christian is equipped to, to by God to play his or her part because Christ is the head. And so the head is perfect. The head is fully mature. There's no nothing about the head that lacks and that needs developing. But the body is where all the maturity needs to take place. So the body has to match the maturity of the head. And that's what I feel like Paul was actually getting to here. Now, working backwards, um, I think now we're better positioned to understand what he was saying in verse 11 when he starts talking about some of the gifts in the church. We jumped past it. Now we're going back to it. And I think, and this is one of the things I want to say. Some people have been frustrated in our church family because we don't have an overemphasis on um, the ways that we honor and celebrate church leadership. I mean, there are people that come to our church that would really like for me to sit in a big cushy chair here um, and, and would like for me to drink, um, you know, $5 bottles of water because that's their church history. That's their experience. That's not, they're not ignorant. They're not stupid. They're not whatever. I mean, that's just the way they were discipled. The, you honor the servant of God. That's the way that they've grown up. I don't believe this passage of scripture is listing these positions because these people should be specially honored. I don't think we should walk around like, well, Ellis is the apostle of the church. And then, you know, and Brandon is the teacher and Emily is the pastor. And, and just going through different people and listing them off like, oh, wow, they just walked into the room. <sighs> you know, I don't think any of that needs to take place. This is not what Paul is saying. There is nothing special with the title. It is all about the part of the body that they play. 
And their part is necessary, just like everybody else's part is necessary. So I think the exact opposite is the case. These particular names should be servants of the church because the main point of these people is to do what? To serve and to help the church do what? Mature. And so if these parts of the body are doing their part, the body should be maturing. And that's what's happening. So if you don't feel like you're maturing, number one, you might have ears that don't hear, or you might not be exposing yourself to the other parts of the body that are supposed to help you mature. It's hard to be taught about Jesus if you don't sit in a room where you can listen. It's hard for you to be pastored and cared for if you, if you always hold yourself away and you don't let anybody into your world. A shepherd can go looking for a sheep, but if a sheep is hiding, it's hard to find them, right? And yes, we forsake the 99 to go after the one, but so many times we have to be saying, look, I need shepherded. I need pastored right now. We need people that are evangelists. We need people that can do those things. I think the apostle talked about here that Paul is specifically listing in this chapter were people like himself who actually bore witness to the resurrection of Jesus and now were commissioned to go and let that good news travel so that churches could be established and that the, the prophets he's obviously referencing, I believe, were the ones that um, were guiding and directing the church specifically before the New Testament time. He's talking about these prophets that literally were shaping the nation of Israel and, and molding them and making them. This isn't necessarily about the prophetic word that he talks about in Corinthians. That's a different meaning but these prophets were special people in the church the the evangelist announced to the surprise of the world that the crucifixion of jesus the crucified jesus that he was alive that he wasn't dead that he had risen and both israel's messiah was now the world's true lord and savior i mean that's what the evangelists were doing the pastors looked after the young churches the teachers developed and trained people in their understanding and their maturity that's what was happening in the city of ephesus and in these churches, and this letter mirrors the, the letter to the church in Colossae very much. So the letters were probably written from the same prison at the same time out of Paul's love for the two churches. Paul makes it clear in this passage that incompetent manager isn't the human body. It's the human mind. The body um, of ours isn't what leads us in the wrong way. It's the mind. He's saying to us in this passage that we have to start thinking rightly about our faith in Christ so that the Holy Spirit can move us. Because what limits you and I in our maturity is what we're thinking. We spent all summer last year thinking about the thoughts of the mind and speaking life and all those things. I hope that you recall that. I think um, Paul longs to see the young churches changing their behavior. The pagan way of life around them was deadly. And so he's spending all this time talking about the people in the church that are supposed to help them. And he's talking to them about all these ways that they're supposed to grow in their faith and maturity. Because if they don't get it in the mind, they're going to fall victim to all the circumstances that were happening around them. Verse 17 actually is talking about the fact that you can't alter your behavior without changing your mindset. The pagan, the Gentile mind, he says, is foolish. With darkened understanding and deep-seated deep ignorance. Um, those are hard words, but I really wonder, what, where, where are we in the dark? Where are we ignorant? 
Because if we don't grasp that tonight, you're going to really struggle with what I have to say tomorrow. Because he's talking more vaguely in chapter 4 about these specific things that, that we could struggle against in the darkness and the deep-seated things. But there are certain things in your life where you're like, God, I accept your grace. I accept your love. I accept the promises. And I will change this about my life, this about my life, this about my life. But you can't have this part of my life. And I think a lot of it is the sexual part. That especially in our culture today, but there could be other things that we're struggling with. And so we're like, God, I want to please you in everything. And this is where Paul is saying, but the but this, that's the Gentile thought. That's a, I, I'm going to worship myself. It's idolatry, really. This in turn springs, I think, from like a sheer hard heartedness. And I think we bump up to that in the church, but that's why there's pastors, teachers, and shepherds so that we can work around the hard-heartedness and get our souls so that they're ripe for seeds and the soil of our soul can bear fruit. You won't change your behavior unless you change your heart and mind. Even in verse 19, I think he's talking a lot about um, the mentality that anything goes. And we won't understand where the behavior comes from unless we understand the state of the mind of our heart. Like, how do we evaluate what we're thinking? How do we evaluate what we have just put our foot down on? I mentioned this in the first couple of weeks that we or first couple of nights. And I'm going to mention it again to you. I put together about an hour, hour and a half teaching on um, sexuality and what heterosexual and homosexuality looks like in God's eyes, according to my interpretation of scripture and what I really feel like honors him in light of Christ. I'm not going to give that to you tonight. We're going to plan another night that we're just going to advertise it to our church. I'm not going to ask you to put it on social media because I want the news to show up and I don't want all the people that come around that. But we're going to have an in-house conversation about what I feel like when, when God shines a light, light on our sexual beings, what really pleases him? What is his heart's intent? What can we actually say, Lord, I surrender this to you? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that tomorrow night, but not fully. Um, this is one of the few places where Paul refers to the basic Christianity, I feel like, that... Um, uh, that new converts receive. What, um, I found this interesting as I was reading Ephesians, looking at Galatians and comparing some things to Colossians. There's things that Paul leaves unsaid. Um, and I think that some of the things he leaves unsaid are the things he automatically assumes they know. Because they're there. They're a part of the church. And so they wouldn't be there if they didn't know certain things. I think sometimes that reading some of Paul's letters, if you're not careful, will seem like you're reading the sequel before you saw the original. And I think that's why some people struggle with some of the things Paul has to say. Because he's already, in some of his letters, saying, well, I already taught you that when I visited you, so now I'm going to pick up from there. And I think there's a little bit of this hinted here in this particular part. Um, and I think, but he's here, we have a clear indication that everything has to do with Jesus himself. I think Paul is saying and reminding them of the foundation of what got them there in the first place. Is that if you and I are going to win the battle of our mind, we have got to say to ourselves, Jesus. So before, like, like I said, if it's a sexual conversation, Jesus. If it's about my money, Jesus. 
if it's about, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. Is it G- my career, my life, um, marriage, the whatever, Jesus, Jesus first. And that's the foundational part of Christianity is saying I want to be in Christ. So is my in Christ matching my thinking right now? Am I thinking like I'm thinking as a person that's in Christ? And so Paul, I believe, is trying to drive that home. So what else is Paul doing in this chapter? I think Paul is urging young Christians um, so that uh, they allow the teaching of Christ to have their full effect on their lives. Now that they are living in Christ, they have the responsibility and the power of the Spirit to take off their old selves, the old way of being, like something stripped off a shabby and worn out suit of clothing. But here's the problem. I think all of us like new clothes, but don't some of us have our favorite pair of pants or our favorite shirt, our favorite sweatshirt? We wear it only at home at night and we cuddle in it, you know, whatever. We never wear it out unless you're going to Walmart. Um, um, Sorry. Uh, But we sometimes we just have. But sometimes you need to get rid of it. But we sometimes need to help each other. Um, when I got married, and if you're listening online, that was my wife saying, oh, yes, amen. She knows exactly what I'm going to say. I don't know if you remember the old MC Hammer like parachute pants that had the Velcro. Um, yes, I wore them, and I wore them like as if they were cool, and they were, um, they were what you were supposed to wear. And so I would meet Ginger for breakfast when we were at college and I would get up in the morning, just throw them on and go meet her for breakfast. And then I'd go back, change for class. And I came home the first week after we got married and all of my parachute pants were missing. Um, and so here, this, this is the deal. Some of us would be highly offended by that. Um, and that is a, that's a personality issue that I think Paul starts to talk about. Because some of us are like, wait a minute, I want you in my life, but you only can come into my life this far. Don't you dare remove something from my life. Don't show me something that is bad for me. Don't talk to me about something. And But again, Paul set a great example of speaking truth with kindness, speaking truth with humility, but yet doing it weeping and tears over people. I knew that my wife's motives for me weren't, weren't to harm me. Matter of fact, I like it when she looks at me like, yeah, you look good. So if I'm wearing something that she's like, you don't look so good, then I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, I mean, yes, I would love her to be like, oh, yay, let's, you know, whatever. That'd be great. But that's not always the result. But the point is not. I think Paul, that Paul is trying to get the church to understand here is that, yes, we need to change our clothes. But the point is not for us to be deceived by our lust, by our greed and the whispers in our ear. It's a matter of our heart, what we know to be true. It's a matter of our mind, how we can meditate on things that are true. And the only way we can do that is to get rid of the things that need to be getting rid, gotten rid of or else we're going to continue to do that. Verse 23, we need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's the secret. If the heart is right, it's time to get the right mind. So our heart is like, wow, I need Jesus. So we're in Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to bring revelation, to bring wisdom to the, to the mind. And so now we have access because our heart is open to Christ, which is the soul of our being. Really, the motivation of our life is in our heart. 
And so now being in Christ, we now have a chance to let the Holy Spirit work on the mind. And that's what the hard maturity process comes from. Because very few people don't want the blessings of a life in Christ. But what they struggle with is having the mind of Christ. And that's why when you read the Gospels, you should just read the Gospels one time through. Or just pick one and just say, what was Jesus thinking as you're reading? Because there's places where he would, we would have probably made a lot of other thoughts. Had a lot of other things that we would have done. But yet he was here in human form, fully human, so that we could see what a human with the right mind would do. And so I think it's really important that we let the spirit do its work off with the old in with the new. And then I love how he ends this passage. Kindness, compassion. I mean, that's central to what Christians should be known for. I don't remember what uh, century it was, but it was a long time ago. Um, Christians were the ones known for caring for the sick that people were throwing into the streets because of the epidemic that was going through Rome. And they were the ones. They were also known for the ones that Roman prisons many times were just holes dug in the ground and a great place over the top. And they put people down in it and occasionally come by and feed them and give them water. The Christians were the ones that were known for just going up to the holes, not knowing who was in it and passing down blankets and food just to help keep prisoners warm. Kindness, compassion. I would love for that to be the testimony of our church. I think kindness is one of the purest forms of what it looks like to imitate God. I mean, has he not been kind to us? How would it be if God were the kind of God who was always making snide remarks about you? Or bitter remarks about you. What would worship be like on Sunday? If you knew that week that God was up there like, man, you know, Bob just, he just doesn't get it, whatever. He's like, he's speaking to the angels like, look, I'm just going to talk to you about Bob. Bob's just a mess. And then Bob comes to church knowing that God had been talking about him that way all week. And then he's supposed to raise his hands and worship that God, right? What would it look like in our worship and our prayer life if we thought that God had been talking behind our backs or putting us down to others? How would it feel if we thought we couldn't trust God to tell us the truth if he was always losing his temper with us? I hope you see where I'm heading with this. Because Paul is making a huge point here at the end of chapter 4. God doesn't do that. So why should we? People should trust us. People shouldn't sit in the row next to us thinking, I know, I know Ginger said this about me this week. I know, I know they're talking behind my back. I know they're talking about me. I know they're slandering me. Imagine how dysfunctioned worship would be if people were sitting there constantly thinking, Oh, I know the person behind me can't stand me because he can't stand my smell right now. I know the person behind me is like, why is that person even here? They don't look like the rest of us, right? The insecurities, like this needs to be a trustworthy place because we have a trustworthy God. This place needs to be a place where the truth is told because we have a truthful God. 
seems to be a place where kindness is exhibited because of a kind God. It's being a place where people should find hope and healing because we find that in God. That's what the church is supposed to be. That's what the church is supposed to do. When we learn about God by looking at Jesus, we, we get exposed to the true God. And then the standard is set. The maturity of the head is in view. Like we now see how mature the head is and so how the body can catch up. And that's what we need. There are too many Christians. I just want to share this with you. Too many Christians that I believe and sometimes even whole churches that allows themselves to forget the kindness and the mutual forgiveness are the very essence of what Christian community is all about. Obviously, there was a church even in the tragedy in Houston that was all over the news because their doors were shut during the flood. You know, um, and I'm not condemning anybody, but what would we do if Baltimore was underwater? Would we be the first ones out of town or would we be the ones swimming to people that need help? Would we be stockpiling our food and sharing it or stockpiling it in our house to make sure that if we're locked up for a few days, we have enough for our family to survive? You know, where, where's the kindness and compassion meter for us? After all, we were called to unity and this letter stresses it repeatedly. And promoting kindness is a great way for us to keep unity. This passage is chock full of practical advice. Living the Christian life demands that we grow up in our thinking. We have to learn to, to hold on to our identity because here's some things that get us, Paul is talking about, your moods and your behavior patterns. Paul is saying, grow up, mature, don't be a baby, don't blame it on your mood. Don't blame it on your behavior. You can't go around and tell people, well, this is just the way I am. That's an immature statement. You can't go around and tell people, well, it's just my mood. I just feel I'm moody today, so just stay away from me. Because on a moody day, I don't have to be like Christ. <laughs> but this is the thing that's difficult. Because the Holy Spirit can help our mind. So we have to have a way to identify when we're stuck in a mood. We have to have a way of identifying when we're stuck in our old self. That is the one that's like, this is the way I am. No, you are new in Christ. You don't have to be the obnoxious person, the hard to get along, the one that corrects everybody for everything. You don't have to be that person anymore because you're new in Jesus Christ. People should want to be around you every day of the week. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the physical body and the struggles of the physical body should determine what the spirit has the power to do through your body. But, but maturity is, is like, you know what, today I don't feel like it. And I have to tell you, there's been several days in this fast and coming and being with you that I'm like, man, God, I just don't have it to, for everybody tonight. And if it was based upon my mood and how I felt, because there's more going on in my life than just teaching you guys. I'm facing some other battles in our church this week that is just exhausting and discouraging, fighting against the things that are encouraging in, in a moment like this. And if I allowed myself, I could just go get in a mood. Or I could, I could just say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to show up and I'm just going to be like, yes, God loves you. You should know that. And now go home and function on the fact that God loves you. But I want to persuade you. To take it seriously that God has something that he wants you to learn and he wants you to know. 
We have to learn consciously to choose to follow the first, which is Jesus, and reject everything else. We've got to learn to do that. It simply won't do to go with the flow of whatever you happen to feel at the time. That, that doesn't do you good in a sexual encounter. That doesn't do you well in a group of friends with um, excessive amounts of substances around you. It doesn't do you any good in a marriage. I'm going to do what I feel right now. I have a problem. That's probably going to make it really difficult in your home. It's going to be that way at work. I'm going to treat people at work the way I feel. That's going to be a lonely day at work. (laughs) Some people think that by doing whatever they feel, they're free to be themselves. But Jesus died for that person. So that we could be the true self that God created us to be. Rather, we should regard our moods and the speech which flow from them as a way to muzzle a horse. That's really what a lot of Paul's examples are. Even James talks about it, the bridle in the mouth. When we are having a bad mood, we've got to figure out a way of getting a bridle on this horse. Because the horse wants to go in one direction, but the road is this way. And we know what happens when we go down the wrong road. That's what we talked about in Ephesians 2. And so there has to be a way for us to muzzle this thing. Paul highlights the importance of speaking the truth. He quotes verses from the Old Testament out of Zechariah 8.16, which predicts that God is going to renew his people and restore their fortunes. So he overemphasizes at the very end, speaking the truth to each other. He goes on to say anger must be dealt with appropriately. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, Psalm 4.4, and he doesn't want anybody... um, He doesn't say that anybody shouldn't be angry, but he's saying to them, it's like you can't be angry in sin. Because some things are worth getting angry about, like the children in our schools not having heat. That's worth being angry about. But I can respond to what I'm angry about without sinning. And sinning is me slandering people that are in charge. Sinning is me assuming the worst in people. Sinning is me going around and talking like as if if I was in charge, everything would be better. Right. And so we've got to be careful that, yes, there's things that make us angry. And then there's anger that comes into our life that acts that isn't right. Like because we're in a mood or we're selfish and anger sets in. But anger is like a, a lit dynamite stick. If you let it explode, it is almost impossible to repair the damage. But yet we have the power of the Holy Spirit and there's forgiveness. And that's a whole other teaching for another day. And God can do a miraculous work. But why set off an unnecessary stick of dynamite? Why make your spouse go through all kinds of different steps to seek healing because of a grenade that went off in your marriage or with your roommates or with your growth community? How many times has somebody come in and just drop your grenade and like, okay, let's just see if we stay unified now. Right. That's what anger does. Anger does. People will come with intentionality to harm when they're angry. And we've got to be careful. We've got to keep that out of the church. Otherwise, we're leaving the door open for all types of destructive, uh, destructive things that could come. We must put these things away. This is what I think he's hinting at at verse 31. It makes sense, doesn't it, that we'd rather live day by day without anger and without um, lying to one another. 
that makes sense. Like we should, that just, but yet it's not natural. It's a spirit power in us. We must take steps to bring it to fruition if it really matters. Verse 28 and 29 says this. Anyone who has been sealed must, excuse me, that has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Our tongue gives us opportunity to talk about God's grace, but our actions actually get a chance to enhance it. Um, we should behave as people who actually have been lavish with God's love and are ready to do that for other people. This Holy Spirit has marked us. And when we do things like stealing, even petty stealing, we're damaging the image of God. When in actuality, we should be looking for ways to generate resources so that we can give resources. It's not that I want to generate resources to hold on to them. That's a whole other teaching Paul's talking about. But he's like, people that steal are only being selfish. People that work have opportunity to share. Now, yes, there's a little bit of a breakdown in that right now in our city because there's a lot of people in our city that just can't work. And sometimes when you're hungry and your children are needy, people will do things for their families. So there are scenarios that we need to be wise in how we talk about them. But for us as Christians in the church, there should be no stealing here. Because if you have a need, you should, somebody should know about it. If you have a need, you should, be, you should tell somebody, I have a need. You can say it with tears in your face. You can do whatever you want. But if you have a need, we're a body. We should know about it. And nobody should have a need. Nobody should. There's plenty amongst us to make sure that everybody has what they need. So if we're marked out by the Spirit, the personal presence living in us, Think how sad it makes the spirit if we behave in ways which don't reflect the life and the love of God. All right, so let me summarize this chapter. Are we living up to the calling we received? Now, that calling isn't our work and our occupation, our vocation. That calling is talking about Jesus. Are we living up to that calling? Where does our church need to grow towards maturity? The head's mature. Where does the body need to grow in maturity? What gifts has God enabled to help this take place? What are the gifts in our church that are enabling this? What challenges, what cunning tricks, false teachings do you need to watch out for? And how do you combat it? What's the old you need to get rid of and what's the new you need to put on? If we're marked out by the Spirit's personal presence living in us, how sad does it make the Spirit if we believe in ways which don't reflect the life and the love of God? And so if that statement is true, um, where is it true in us? Where are we not reflecting the life and the love of God? Let me give you an example. This is a simple example of that last one. You might be focused on your relationships everywhere except for the bus driver that shows up at your stop late 
and you walk onto the bus, you throw your ticket in there or your money, and you just like, man, I can't, why can't the city buses ever be on time? Right? Are we exemplifying the life and the love of God in that person's life? Do you have any idea what their day's been like, what they've experienced, what's their fault, what's not their fault? Could it be a neighbor that you don't talk to because they leave their trash can in front of your door? You know, what is it? Somebody steal your recycling bin and you're just upset with them now? Um, I'll tell you this funny story. Um, most of you know that I, I, have a, I have a window of opportunity open for me to be the chaplain for the Baltimore Orioles. And if you follow them on social media, you know that Caleb Joseph has taken on painting as a side project. And so he got an easel for Christmas and started painting pictures. And during the season, he painted two landscapes. And the last day of the season, he came by my house to give me one of them. But he left it by my garage door because I wasn't there. And by the time I got home, what happens when people set stuff out by their doors? People think, oh, it's a giveaway pile, right? That's what I assume. They think it's a giveaway pile. It's not for me to take. And so I guess they thought that I didn't want the picture. And so they have one of two original pictures painted by Caleb Joseph. You know what I want to do? I want to go door to door saying, you mind if I come into your house? (laughs) Um, That picture on your wall was meant for me. (laughs) But you know what? I could have gotten bitter. I could have gotten angry. I was sad. I was disappointed. But yet, at the end of the day, I I I just want people to know that they're loved. And when they bump up against me, I want what pours out of me to be Christ. I don't want when people bump into me to see something else. So, Lord, we come to you. We thank you for tonight. I thank you that my brothers and sisters stayed through this long teaching. But, Father, I pray that it's something that your spirit wants for us, desires for us. And, Father, even as I'm fatiguing over these straight nights of teaching and yesterday, Lord, um, I pray that you give me strength for chapter 5 and 6 the next two nights. But, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that despite whether or not I make it through it, that your spirit would just complete the maturity work in us. Because, Father, your spirit can teach, your spirit gives wisdom, your spirit gives revelation, your spirit gives power. And so, Father, would we guard our minds? Would we guard our hearts so that we can fully mature? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.